0: This was the, uh, the morning that the bottom dropped out. Um, I was standing there on the front porch of my parents' house. It was pouring down rain. I was waiting for the school bus to arrive, uh, waiting and waiting. It was running just a little bit late that morning. I'm watching and watching, and uh, then I heard it. I heard it coming. And so I went tearing down the steps of the front porch through the front woods. Didn't really have a yard in that house, that property. So tearing through the front uh, woods across the street, stopped, turned, and then it happened. The shift in my momentum and all the rain that had soaked through my paper lunch bag caused my lunch to hit the asphalt, literally. The bottom dropped out. When I hear that expression, um, the bottom dropping out, that's the image that always comes to my mind. Whenever I hear someone use those words, that day, which, by the way, didn't get off to such a great start, and I've had worse days than that. I'm sure that you have, too. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor, this, this idea of the bottom dropping out. It means, in essence, when everything falls apart, when everything comes undone, when everything comes unhinged, everything that we had been looking to and relying on to be there gives and gives way. So what do we do? What do we do when the bottom drops out? Let's look to God's Word. Going to look at 1 Kings chapter 17. We are in the midst of a little series here, looking at the lives of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And so we are in the midst of the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. If you're trying to find 1 Kings, let me help you. Uh, if you're moving from the left to the right in your Old Testament, you'll hit the books of 1st and 2 Samuel, then the books of 1 and 2 Kings and then the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles. So that sort of gives you some idea of where to, where to look for for the, this particular book. 1 Kings is where we are. 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, we're going to be looking in particular at verses 17 through 24, but I'm going to back up just a little bit to verse 8 because that really does set the tone for what's coming there and uh, where we're going to be uh, really uh, focusing, uh, verses 17 through 24. So... 1 Kings, chapter 17, looking at, starting with, verse 8. Hear now God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Now that hymn is Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a woman was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days, the jar a flower was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged, and laid him on his own bed, and he cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives and the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let's pray together. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I'm yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Lord, give us ears with which to hear, eyes with which to see. What was transpiring there that day, there in that little town of Zarephath, those horrible, horrible circumstances. Give us eyes with which to see, and ears with which to hear, our own circumstances in accord with truth as we come to find here in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I know some of you have heard me allude to this no few times. Um, I'm going to go back to it again. In chapter 8 of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, As Mr. Beaver is trying to describe what Aslan is like, that great and mighty lion who is the true king, the true ruler of the land of Narnia, Susan interrupts. She jumps in to ask, is he quite safe? Who said anything about safe? Mr. Beaver replies. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Four chapters later, when the group meets Aslan, Lewis, as the narrator, says this, But as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think the thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. During the final chapter of the story, during the great celebration, Aslan slips away without any notice. And Mr. Beaver says these words to the children. He'll be coming and going. One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. And of course he has other countries to attend to. He'll drop in often. Only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know. Not like a tame lion. Now, I come back to that again and again and again when I'm trying to think of an image that seems to capture um, both the, the power and the compassion, the might and the mercy that we see in God. And I, I, I've drawn back to this image of this great line, Aslan, again and again and again in this wonderful work of, of Lewis's fiction because I think it rightly captures all of that in inspiring both love and trust. When we understand that that's what God is like. This beautiful, not one without the other, beautiful combination of both, complete, utter, amazing power and strength, and yet at the same time, mercy and compassion and love and goodness towards us. Not one without the other, but somehow both, at the same time, or I suppose, as Lewis says, both good and terrible at the same time. Now, that takes us to our text because you see both those things coming out here in this passage. this, This dual characterization here in the Lord Himself. Now, the broader context, what's going on here at this point here in 1 Kings 17? We're in the midst of a drought. And it's a terrible drought. And there's a question being forced upon Uh, the people of the land, especially the kingdom of Israel in particular. And the question is this. Who is God? Is he Baal? Or is he the Lord? Who is God? Who is worthy of our heart's allegiance and trust? Who is it? Which is it? Now, again, this is in the context of a drought. Now, that is a direct challenge to everything that Baal is supposed to be about as the supposed god of fertility, the source of the rains that would come. And literally, therein, in an agrarian society, be the source of life itself. But thus far, Baal has been a no-show in the contest. Because when you really look at it and you pay attention to what's being said here, clearly this it is the Lord who is showing up, if you will, and providing for Elijah and this widow in the context of this terrible drought. And all of which presses in thus far, and as we continue reading in our text this morning, that yes, he is powerful. Yes, he is strong. Yes, His might is amazing, but equally too, and no less so, is His mercy and His grace and His compassion and His goodness. And when we grasp, when we grasp those two things, that His compassion is as amazing as His power, that transforms to the core our response to our the troubles we go through in life to when the bottom drops out when we get in the the depths of our being we've been embraced it when our the roots are sinking down into those realities going deeper and deeper all the time that he his his grace his goodness is as amazing as his power and his might it transforms all our responses to the troubles in life you see that in the two ways these two people respond the two shall I say main characters in this event and the first is the widow and the second is the prophet Elijah himself let's look at the, the, the first response the response of what I'll call wounded disbelief now it's not unbelief the widow had knew something of who God is clearly she's experienced something that's why I wanted to read the prior passage she's caught a glimpse of the power and might of God, but she seems now at this point to know so very little of His goodness and kindness at the same time. She has not grasped all of that. Hers is a wounded disbelief because she is so deeply wounded. It has has moved her from any stance of belief to disbelief. She can't believe what's on. She's so broken, she's so hurting. As a widow, obviously she's lost at some point her husband, by the description that's given here in the text, we can see that from her, of her house, we can, reading between the lines, we can tell that at least at one time she was a woman with means. Now she's in utterly destitute. Now she's lost her son, her only son, on whom likely, especially in that culture, she has put all her hopes and dreams. Everything is on that boy. And that boy is now dead. So for all practical purposes, she has now lost everything. That's where she is. In a state of wounded disbelief. Now let's break this down. What's causing the woundedness? And what shall I say making a a, a hard thing harder? A terrible thing worse? What's fueling it? What's fueling it are the flawed assumptions about life that she began with. And and it's it's like a faulty uh, foundation with cracks in it. You put enough pressure on it, and it's going to give way and crumble. And hers was a flawed foundation. Pressure on, it's crumbling. What were they? Read in between the lines. I think there's at least two that we can speak to here. One is that life with God will be easy. Not necessarily. I mean, you can imagine what she's thinking. Hey, the jar of flour and the jug of oil, they're full. This is great. We haven't had a a hunger pang in our stomachs for weeks. This is wonderful. Life with God will be great, right? Hmm. Maybe not. Be careful. That's a myth. Here's another one, and that was the calm before the storm. Another would be the relationship and the causality myth that we oftentimes think exists between prosperity and suffering. Uh, Apparently, she has, and you see this in what she in the and we'll get into this in a minute. What she says to Elijah, Um, and it's very much what you see with Job's friends. It's very much what you see sadly with Jesus' disciples early on in his relationship, their relationship with him. This idea that prosperity and ease is directly connected to righteous living. Conversely, suffering and pain is directly connected to sin. So if you're suffering, what's that mean? You're sinning. I wouldn't use that counsel in a counseling room. But that's where she is. And so these flawed assumptions, as the pressure is now on, is causing a crumbling, a distress in the face of trouble. And so she's lashing out. She's lashing out because of this at Elijah. Look at what she says, verses 17 and 18. After this, the son of the widow, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, and the exclamation points are are very appropriate here, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now, we need to be sympathetic with this dear, dear lady. But by the same token, we need to be honest And look at what's going on here and the dynamics that are playing out in her heart, lest we fall into the same trap. In essence, she's saying, I'm suffering. Because of these assumptions, I'm suffering, which must mean I've been exposed. My sin's been exposed. You, prophet, have exposed me. This is your doing. This is your fault. He's lashing out against Elijah. And beyond that, who is she ultimately really lashing out at? Who is she really angry with? Who is she really holding great resentment and bitterness towards at this point? The Lord Himself. She's not just upset with the messenger. She's upset with the message. Look, you can imagine what she's thinking. I've cared... For your profit, I've brought him into my home. I've exercised all the hospitality I possibly can in a drought. For Pete's sake, you can see it's a little twisted here, but bear with me. I've taken. What else do you want from me? Isn't that enough? Isn't that worth something in your sight? What did I do to deserve this? See the distrust, the deep root of distrust and resentment in this woman's heart. Not just towards Elijah, but t- towards the Lord. These flawed assumptions that she's operating with are breaking out now in great distress. And, she, and she's hardly the first one in the, in the scriptural record to go through something like this. You think, look back in the book of Ruth, and you think, think about Naomi who also experienced profound loss in the midst of a famine. Naomi lost her husband. She lost her sons. Things were so bad that when she returned back to their homeland, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which literally means bitter. But there are other scriptural examples. That cut the the at the root of this lie that cut the the legs out from underneath all these flawed assumptions. Think with me the example such of, of figures as joseph Joseph, who was thrown into an Egyptian prison for refusing to sleep with his master's wife well that blows up the model or or job's friends and what they were saying, job who lost all of his wealth, all of his children, his health, and it had nothing to do, nothing to do with any unrighteousness on his part. Oh, or the case of cases. Jesus, who knew no sin, and yet experienced far worse than anyone ever has or will. We need another model here in terms of how suffer, where suffering comes from and how it plays out in our lives if we think that it's only related to sin. It can really, really mess with us. The sources of our troubles are complex, and we dare not be oversimplistic. Yes, yes, sometimes it can be brought about because of our foolish, bullheaded, Sinful choices. Yes. It can also be, yes, because of what others have done to us, either intentionally or unintentionally. That's true. It can also be because we live in a broken, fallen world that has been cursed, which is why there are floods and famine and sickness and deformities and disease, and all the sorrow that goes with it. You see the layers of complexity already? Now there's a couple more. In the spiritual realm, there is an enemy, Satan himself, who has no less in mind than to keep any good being developed in or through you as God's servants. And then there's God himself, who was never the author of sin but in the mystery and wisdom of his ways will allow things to take place for his good and mysterious purposes you see we simply cannot be simplistic likely in every and certainly in this case we we could probably look at that those five things i just mentioned and see there's there's three or four of them going on there and the interrelatedness and the combination of my point being that we need a saner view. We need a saner view, a truer view of where suffering is coming from and how to respond to it. And as we see here, and we'll get into this in the next point, as we see here that God's compassion is as equally amazing as His power, that enables us to trust Him. It begins to, to, to protect us from the resentment and the bitterness that can build up in us and actually move towards Him and towards one another instead of pulling back. Okay, that said, let's move to the second point. That not the response of wounded disbelief, but the response of faithful belief. You think in terms of Elijah and where, what he's experiencing, what he's seeing here. This had to have been so hard for him to see. He's human. Had, and what he's said to him had to have been so hard to hear. Phil Reichen in his commentary here puts it this way. It's, it's kind of whimsical, but I think he's got it. Everything seemed to be going so well for him. He was getting one square meal a day while living in a nice loft in Zarephath. And then his landlady came to him with a dead body and a charge of homicide. With her dead son in her arms, she accused Elijah of fatal pastoral malpractice. Elijah had a congregation of only two to begin with. Now one of his parishioners was dead, and the other is attacking him and his ministry. So there you have it. Elijah's off to a great start this day. How does he respond on the horizontal level to this woman? Verse 19. After she says what she does and attacks him as she does, and he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. What does he not do? He does not get offended and defensive. You get off saying that to me. Woman. No, he shows an astonishing restraint and literally, without messing with the phrase, grace under pressure. Taking literally her burden from her upon himself and loving her. How in the world is he able to do that? He's able to do that because of the spiritual dynamics of something going on in the depths of his heart. Um, Paul speaks to this in 1 Thessalonians 5. um, In in a a way, responding in a way that is tailored and fitted to the need and not the impulses that we might feel. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. What's going on here? How how can Elijah do this? His is a heart that is overflowing with grace because he's experienced the, the God of grace. That's how he's able to respond this way to this woman and all her pain and what she's saying to him. And that, of course, is a response that is markedly different than most any other that we could possibly see and would come naturally to us. Bec- having experienced the grace of God, we then are able to overflow with grace to others um, in a way that is fitted to the need. Some of you heard me tell this story before. Um, I'm going to tell it again. My, my uncle Ed, my, my dad's youngest brother, was in the Navy years ago, and he was suffering from appendicitis, acute appendicitis painful appendicitis as he's lying in a gurney in a hallway. And a doctor, he's, my, my uncle's writhing in pain, as I've heard the story told. This doctor comes up to him, not really knowing what's going on, and begins to push on my uncle's abdomen. At which point my uncle, I don't think he literally sat up, but he grabbed the man by the collar and said a few words that I will translate in this way. Do that again, and I will do you great physical harm. Now, what would the appropriate, and what was, the appropriate response of the doctor in that moment? To have him arrested, brought up on charges? No. Oh, well then maybe have him discharged. We'll just ignore it. Let him figure it out. No. Wheel him into surgery, recognizing what's behind those angry words. And dealing with that first. It's something like that here with Elijah in, in a response that is fitted to the need to this woman. Now that's on the horizontal level, but then there's a vertical level too. And he goes to God. Verse 20, O oh Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life Come into him again. Now, Elijah doesn't know exactly what's going to happen here and what's going on here or what the Lord's purposes are any more than this widow does. But that doesn't cause him to despair, nor does it cause him to just ignore it and walk away. But rather, he gets very much involved and goes to the Lord with all of his questions and all of his concerns and all of his worries and all of his confusion and praise. Literally stretching himself out. Now, just real quick as an aside here, this is not, as some commentators would have you believe, Elijah like a transferal of body heat or some ancient Near East version of CPR. This is a prophetic action. You see it again and again through the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets physically, demonstrably engaged in what they're saying and what they're communicating. That's exactly what's going on here in the stretching out and this. He is praying, and he's praying praying with all his heart for something that at this point, by the way, was completely unprecedented, a dead person coming back to life. This is the first time in in the scriptural records, in any history that we have, of a dead person coming back to life. So Elijah is not appealing to a precedent. He is praying in faith, longing, longing to see... Well, he knows who this God is again. A God of great power and a God of great compassion. And on that basis, he is praying in faith, longing that some some hearkening back to the way things were originally when all things were new, or longing for a foretaste of how things ultimately one day will be when all things are renewed, longing for everyone to catch a glimpse of to get the, the sight of the glory of this God of all power and all compassion, look who he is. and that's how he's praying. That's what he's longing for here. He's praying with, with great boldness, and again, a response that is markedly different and is shaped and transformed because he has a, a grasp of who God is. And that again, changes how we will respond when the bottom drops out to others. Because it enables us to serve them and to love them and to say what needs to be said even if it's got to be hard and to do what needs to be done even when it's not easy. Why? Because we are secure in who we are in Christ and who we know God to be. It changes how we respond to Him as well when the bottom drops out because we know we can trust Him because He is this God who is whos Compassion is just as amazing as His power, which enables us, to even today, to pray boldly in faith, able to wait and see what He will do, perhaps changing the circumstances, perhaps changing us in the circumstances, or perhaps the two, or some mixture of the two. Because He's all-powerful, and all good, and no compromise, and no... No watering down of of either point. Now, just as we're finishing this up, I want to add one thing, and that is, I know we like answers. We're 21st century Westerners. We're addicted to answers and clarity, and we hate and we despise ambiguity. When your GPS tells you this data is good within 300 feet, your response is, not good enough. When the FedEx tracking information can't tell you when the delivery is going to be to the hour, not good enough. When the physical therapist tells you the recovery is going to be mm, somewhere between six and eight months, you don't like that. You want it nailed down. You want to make plans. Or when the counselor tells you this deal you're struggling with is a whole lot messier than you thought, it's going to take... More than an hour. You get nervous. And when someone we care for is really deeply struggling and hurting and it's been going on a long time and you don't see an easy answer and you want to fix it yesterday, you don't like that. Now, I hate to end on a harsh note, but here's the deal. We're not always going to have the answers in this life that we want and insist on. The what, the when, the how, and the why. We must learn to live with some ambiguity. But that said, in the deepest possible sense, there is no ambiguity with which we need to live at all. Because even beneath, when the bottom has dropped out, there's bedrock that never gives. Now what is that? It's the Lord Himself who has revealed Himself to us fully and finally in Jesus whose cross and empty tomb we see alluded to and pointed to even in this text. This woman, yeah, justice for her sin would be done, but not through the death of her son, but through the father's son. And the raising of this boy as wonderful, as beautiful, as encouraging and inspiring as that was, is but a flicker, is but a foretaste of a much greater rising, of a greater sun to come. Now what does that tell us? That tells us that God is moving towards us. And He is moving our story and the story of this whole cosmos towards the day of days, the great day when everything's going to be made new, when everything is going to be changed, when, when justice is going to rain down like like the fountains, and we are going to be made new, and all that, all the suffering, and all the heartache, and all the tears, and all that caused it, is going to be counterbalanced by His glory, and a glimpse of His goodness, that will last and fill our sight for all eternity. Things are not going to stay this way. The bottom never really drops out because there's this bedrock. Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we need to be desperately so grounded and secured and rooted because the storms come and sometimes they're so severe that we find ourselves deeply shaken. But, Lord, we also confess that sometimes we are shaken more than we should be because we think that the bottom really has dropped out and we can't see anything but space. Having lost sight of your power, your might, your goodness, your grace. We see this theme we hear this chorus all through the Scriptures, rising to a climax at the cross in the empty tomb. We ask that You'd help us to see it this week and live out of it. In Your name we pray. Amen.